This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Real Real Podcast with me, Natalie Barbu. Today's episode, you guys are going to love it. I'm just going to come right out the bat and say it. You are going to love today's episode. I had the privilege of interviewing Allie Grant, who is the founder of Be Social. And if you don't know what Be Social is, let me just... Let me just give you a rundown of what Be Social is. It has been named one of Inc.'s fastest growing businesses, spearheading digital forward campaigns across influencers, events, and editorial. If you're an influencer, you work in influencer marketing, you're a manager, you work in any type of marketing, you've probably heard of Be Social. They are one of the fastest growing companies and they're one of the most known companies because Ali started this business so early on into influencer marketing. And Be Social was recently acquired by Dolphin Entertainment, which we actually talked about in today's episode. I am super fascinated in the growth of Be Social, how she started it, why she started it, the challenges that she faced, and I loved hearing more about how she was acquired and kind of the process that that takes getting acquired. I feel like we always hear about companies being acquired, but I actually wanted to hear it from her point of view as the founder of this company. What's it like to sell something that you've been growing for so long? This episode is great if you're interested in learning how to grow a very, very successful company and not only how to grow it, but how to grow it quickly and how to scale. We also get a little real with you in here. We talk about any challenges that she's had. And then of course, we talk about starting a business in general, but then also getting acquired and exiting that business in a way. So she's still at Be Social. She's still the CEO and the founder, but we did talk about the acquisition process and it was super fascinating to me. And before we get into this episode, let's get into the highs and lows of my week. So this week I am actually in Boston and I would say that is the high, but I'm going to try to get a little more specific because I feel like it's a little... Uh, I don't want to say cliche, but I don't want to just say, oh, my high is being in Boston. I, I want to give you some details. I want to give you some specific stuff. So I would say my high, um, something great that happened this week that I was a little unexpected was actually I went to an estate sale. I had never been to an estate sale before, but Keon and I were driving around some of the suburbs of Massachusetts and we saw a sign for an estate sale. So we ended up stopping by and it was this really old, like, beautiful home in in this like really nice neighborhood right outside of Boston. Um, You could tell that they had a lot of life there, which some some part of me is like a little creeped out by estate sales, but 
I don't know. I, I still, it was interesting seeing like all the stuff that they were selling and like the different styles of the different decades. And it was, it was really cool. Um, but she, the woman that lived at this house had a lot of designer stuff. And when I say a lot, there was so much Chanel being sold. There was so much Gucci being sold. There was actually a really, really beautiful Gucci bag that was being sold and I wanted it so badly, but someone had taken it right ahead of me. But I did find another Gucci bag. It was this tiny little brown Gucci bag that fits my phone and my keys and like a wallet, like a teeny, teeny, teeny wallet. And it was super, super cute. It had like this gold detailing that says Gucci that was like the buckle if you will like the buckle to open and close the purse and it was just it's it's so gorgeous you guys can find it on my Instagram story but I loved it so that'd probably be my high finding something like that because if you guys know I am not a vintage shopper I don't like shopping vintage I don't not that I don't like it that because if if it comes to me I I really like it but I don't have the patience I should say I don't have the patience to shop through thrift stores I just that's why I like like thread up or things like this that there's a much either smaller selection or the selection is easier to go through because if it's something that like I'm at a goodwill or I'm at like a giant thrift shop or a vintage shop it's really hard for me to find pieces that I don't know I like in the in the midst of everything so I don't have the biggest patience or I don't have the most patience for thrift shopping but I commend anyone who does so I like more curated things or just a smaller selection so I found this really gorgeous Gucci bag I got it for around $275 so I think I can definitely resell it for more than that once I'm done with it but I think it's something I'll keep because I think it's really beautiful and um, I, I just love it. So I don't, I don't imagine myself selling it, but that was kind of how I justified this random $300 purchase was I was like, well, like worst case I'll sell it. But I, let's be honest. I don't think I will. I, it, it's super, super cute. And it's going to be like the perfect little clutch for when I go out it has some like gold chain on it. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, <laughs> and then as for my low of the week, what would be my low? It's always hard for me to think of lows of the week. And I guess that's a good thing. I guess I won't say always. Some weeks it's pretty easy, but this week it's a little hard to think of the low of the week. So I'll go with something that I guess I found out. So I found out that Keon and I won't be seeing each other for five weeks, which is one of the probably the longest time we've gone without seeing each other in three years. I think five weeks is the longest, um, which sucks because we're just so busy. I have I'm going to Jacksonville next weekend I'm going home for my brother's graduation I have a friend visiting me in Florida he's going out of town one weekend like it's just back and forth and like we're just so busy and our calendars are so booked that the earliest time we can see each other is in five weeks so that kind of sucks um so that would be my low I feel like we found that we were like trying to book our next time seeing each other and we realized that it's not going to be for another five weeks, which just isn't isn't the most fun. It's it's not the best. So I would say that that is definitely my low of the week, realizing that today is going to be the last time I see my boyfriend in five weeks, which kind of sucks. But that's life and that's long distance, baby. So <laughs> I feel like that's very, very normal, which is just unfortunate. If you guys enjoy this podcast and you enjoy this episode, don't forget to leave it five stars on Apple Podcasts. That just helps a lot. It helps grow the podcast. It helps, you know, help people find it. The podcast algorithm is confusing. So if you could rate it, that would be incredible. And I would really, really appreciate it. Or if you're listening to this episode, take a screenshot and post it on your story. So I know that you're listening because I love seeing those. 
Allie's story is incredible. You guys are going to love this episode and I'm so excited to get into it. So let's just get into the podcast with Allie. You know what the best feeling is when you walk out the door feeling like you can conquer the world because your hair looks amazing? You know those days when your hair shines with confidence? Well, I have something that are going to make those good hair days into a daily reality, which is Way's new hair gloss. I personally have been loving taking care of my hair. I just got a new haircut and at first I was iffy on it, but then the more I've looked at it and the more I've styled it, I actually really love it and I don't think I can go back to super long hair. It's all about how you style it. So I have been meticulous about my hair routine. I've been incorporating Waze hair gloss and it has literally made me love my haircut and love all of the different ways that I can make it look. It's so easy. Just five minutes in the shower and bam, instant shine. And let me tell you, preventing heat damage is a top priority for me. And with hair gloss protecting my hair up to 450 degrees, I can style worry-free. And the best part, my hair Hair feels shinier, healthier, and more vibrant than before. If you guys have seen my blowouts on my Instagram or my TikTok, you know that I have been feeling my hair and it has been so shiny. Getting your shine on in the shower with Waze hair gloss is so easy and it's packed with hyaluronic acid and rice water. And so it so it not only gives you immediate shine, but also treats damage and enhances color vibrancy. And here's the best part. In a consumer perception study, over 85% of participants agreed that their hair looks shinier, healthier, and smoother with Waze hair gloss. Loss. Give your hair a glow up with Way. Go to T H E O U A I and use promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T H E O U A I dot com, promo code RealReal. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited. I've I've listened to your podcast, like I said before we started recording, and I absolutely love it. And I've heard episodes that you've actually been featured on. So I'm very mm-hmm. excited to have you on. And I know my listeners are going to love this episode. Yay, this will be fun then. So we're going to start with setting the record straight. And this is where I say some stereotypes or some assumptions, and then you'll let me know if they're true or false and feel free to expand on them. Um, okay. But the first one is every business should utilize influencer marketing. Oh, I mean, I think yes, because that's the business I'm in. But I also think there's alternative methods, right? I don't mm-hmm. think every business can and should because it's expensive. And I think there's more, there's probably more cost-effective ways to do it. There's also different industries that really can't do influencer marketing um, because of FTC regulations and things like that. Um, But I would say majority of brands and companies should try some form of influencer marketing, whether that's organic or paid. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Regardless, I do think every company, even across industries, should be on social. And I think that sometimes Mm -hmm. bleeds into influencer marketing. You know, you can kind of work with influencers on social in a more organic way. Yeah, Yeah. whether that's just like DMing or commenting or engaging. Like, it doesn't have to be like paying an influencer to post about your product. It can be in different forms, like you said. Right. And the next one is you need to have experience before starting a business. 
Well, no, (laughs) I was 23 years old, like straight out of college. I had one job, I guess, prior. Um, but no, I'm like a bit big advocate of learn by doing, Mm -hmm. obviously there's certain trades that you have to have experience in like doctors and lawyers and things like that. Um, but in business and marketing, like I think the best experience is learned on the job. And if you have like heart and hustle, I think you can get anything done. Yep. I completely agree. And I can't wait to hear more about how you started Be Social because it's something that I was looking it up like previous interviews and stuff. And I'm, mm-hmm. I love your backstory. So I'm so excited to, to talk about it on the podcast. Awesome. And the last one is that influencers are entrepreneurs. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, behind the scenes of what a content creator influencer is doing, I mean, you are doing marketing, PR for yourself, social media, you're doing accounting, legal, like you are doing A through Z to run a business behind the scenes as an influencer. So yes, hundred percent. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those things that people see the final product, like they'll see the Instagram or the YouTube mm-hmm. video and they think, mm-hmm. oh, that's easy. Like <laughs> that's anyone can right. do that, but they don't actually see everything else that goes on, like the negotiations, reaching out, being consistent, networking, like it's so much more than just posting a pretty picture. A hundred percent. And now I'm curious about your background. So I know we kind of talked about how you didn't have experience in it, but what were you Mm -hmm. doing before you founded Be Social? Yeah. So I was working at a digital agency. Um, It was down in San Diego. It's no longer around now, but um, it was sort of like at the height of Facebook and Twitter for brands. So we were doing a lot of strategy there. Um, from like building Facebook landing pages and giveaways and things like that um, and helping them with their digital strategy. Um, It was right around like Instagram was a thing, but not necessarily for brands at the time. So we were like starting to look at that. Um, And then I was given the opportunity to sort of run this new department within the company, um, really focused on affiliate marketing. And so what that meant was that I needed to get essentially bloggers or people with high traffic websites talking about our clients. And so that was sort of at the start of influencers, really. These were mommy bloggers, fashion bloggers with these websites that had tons of traffic. And so I was sending our clients product to them, getting them to post about it. Um, and essentially driving links and traffic and sales to the clients we were representing at the time. And I was like, this is really interesting. I was like, there are some legs here because I was firsthand seeing the results that were coming in for my clients. Cause I had dashboards and analytics of like, wow, I sent that swimsuit to, I think it was like peace, love Shay at the time she wore it in the Bahamas, posted about it on her blog. And that swimwear brand saw so much traffic and sales it was crazy. So I really saw this as something I really wanted to focus on because I saw the results so easily. Mm -hmm. And at your, when you were working at that company, did other people see influencer marketing as a big thing or were you kind of the one that was pushing it? No, I think the senior staff at the time, a lot of them had, um, background in affiliate marketing, more like working with like coupon sites and things like that. So kind of bringing in bloggers into it was a little bit different for them. But I think all of us were like, wow, the clients are seeing such success. And so, yes, they, they definitely saw that this was something we should focus on. Um, but eventually the company kind of took a different direction and more did like website building and things like that. And that actually kind of gave me the opportunity to sort of go branch out on my own. And I guess that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. And how did you fi- like 
how did the idea of be social come about? Like, was it a light bulb moment where you're like, I need to go on my own and do this? Or was it just like you started as freelance and then it kind of grew? Like, how did it start? Yeah. I mean, I think at the time, like truly, I was like, this blogger thing is we, like, I didn't even say the word influencer at the time. We didn't say that. It was a blogger. Um, I was like, there's like legs here. This is so interesting. These brands are seeing so much traction from this type of work. I was like, there has to be like a company that focuses just on this. And so that's really what I set out to do. Um, and at first, you know, I quit my job. You know, I wanted it to end positively. Um, and so I just sort of tried to figure it out on my own, which like essentially was just like freelancing for a little bit. So I landed my first client. I was a one man show helping them with launching some studios as a fitness studio, um, and getting mommy bloggers to attend. And it just like one thing led to another and I got more referrals and clients and, um, eventually it became more of like a real shop where I had an employee in an office, but I, I'd say for the first couple of months, I was more so a freelancer, but I had my business name and my logo and my website. So I was sort of faking it until I, I made it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And with your first client, how did you get that first client? I feel like that's always the hardest part when you're starting something on your own, especially if you mm -hmm. don't necessarily have like a ton of people in your network. So how did you mm -hmm. land that very first client and get them to trust you? Yeah, that is such a good question. And I think credibility is very difficult when you're young and you're new and it's like a brand new company. So I had a big hurdle to get over. But um, luckily I had, so kind of through my entire college career, I had taken tons of internships. So I had worked at like various PR firms, social agencies, ad agencies, and I really maintained the relationships with the people I was working under during those internships. And that became very fruitful for me in the end, um, because one of my first clients was actually an introduction from, you know, one of the people I interned for uh, back in college. Um, she had seen that I started on my own and she had a friend of a friend that was looking for help and she just made the connection. Um, so that was like my first client right out the gates. Um, and luckily I did great work. And so that client kept referring me to other people. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's always, I think the hardest part, like I, I'm trying to do like something similar, not like the influencer mm -hmm. marketing route, but with just an agency and helping with social media strategy, it's something yeah. that the hardest part is finding those initial clients and like mm -hmm. getting them to trust you. Cause after that referrals help and you know, you, yeah. you start building a portfolio, but that was always the struggle for me was like, okay, how do I get these people to trust me? And then also pay, you know, cause it's one I of those know. things that social, I don't know about you, but social is one of those things that like, if you don't see immediate results, it's like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to spend that much money on it. And mm -hmm. I feel like social is one of those things that you, it's like a long-term thing. It's not just like one thing totally. and then you're going to blow up. So <laughs> I know. And it's like, yeah, every day, a little work. Yeah, for sure. And I think for me too, like I was selling like blogger outreach and influencer relations. I felt like I was selling like snake oil because people were like, what is this? Like, I don't quite understand it yet. You're telling me these girls with these blogs are going to, you know, have people buying from my website. Like I, I sort of had to explain my service and explain myself. So mm -hmm. it was definitely difficult in the beginning, but there was certainly a turning point when like influencer marketing was like the it thing to do. And like, I, I was turning down clients at that point because it was just like so much, you know, interest in the type of work that we were doing. 
Yeah. And when you started with influencer marketing, I know that it, I mean, you even said like influencer wasn't even a word. It was blogger. That was the word that people would use. So how has it changed since you've started? Well, there's so many more influencers, creators, bloggers, whatever you want to call them. I think that has been the biggest thing. Like, you know, when I was first starting out, there was maybe like a handful of like really strong content creators. And now there's what millions of people doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, So the pool of people to reach out to and gift product to and work with is much larger. Um, there's also new platforms, right? Like Instagram is like the it platform. And I feel like we weren't really focused on that quite yet in the beginning. It was more like blog, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and then now there's TikTok. Uh, we're working on YouTube. Um, there's Clubhouse. Like there's so many new platforms and more to you know emerge as well. So I feel like that's really been different. And I think also now like brands understand influencer marketing. So it's like, I'm not trying to sell the benefits of it anymore to a new client. Like they get it. They just want to find a company that can do it well. And I think how we've been able to do it well is just like continuously building these relationships with influencers because now there's so many different companies doing what we do. So I feel like it's much more competitive than it was when we first started. Oh yeah, definitely. And there's so many more influencers and platforms, like you said, Mm -hmm. do you notice any specific platform that you think performs better than the rest? Like when it comes to influencer marketing or it just depends. Mm -hmm. It really depends on like the KPIs and what the brand wants. Like if a brand is coming to us and they like, just want like beautiful content that they can utilize on their newsletter or whatever it might be. Like I just say, let's do static Instagram posts. If they're looking for like direct traffic and like coupon code redemption, I push towards like IG stories. Um, If they're wanting more like viral content, tons of impressions, like coming up with an interesting reel or TikTok campaign, um, quality, you know, video, let's do a YouTube campaign. So it kind of just depends on what they're looking for. Yeah. I always find that so interesting because as an influencer, I... I'm always, I'm just the one creating the content and like promoting Mm -hmm. it, but I don't see like the back end, you know, I don't see like Mm -hmm. how many people used my coupon code or what was like the ROI Mm -hmm. of this campaign. So I'm always curious Mm -hmm. to know about like which platforms perform better in that sense. Cause I mean, we really, like as influencers, like we don't see that unless the brand like happens to tell you or like, I'll know I did like a good job on something, I guess, if like they want to work with me again, I'm like, okay, I guess the first campaign went really well. Yeah. And you can always ask them too, like, like, Hey, like I want to add this in my media kit or, you know, I want to be able to share this information confidentially with people. Like, let me know like how I performed. I think it'd be like an interesting thing to at least have that data for you to look at. Yeah, no, I, I should definitely start doing that. Um, and then also with influencers, I feel like there's a huge misconception with them, like that they don't really work or that it's like not hard Mm -hmm. work. Kind of like we talked about earlier. What do you think is the biggest, I guess, misconception when brands are working with influencers like that brands don't do right when they're working with influencers or Mm -hmm. they expect something that's like not going to happen I think it's really like okay you hired an influencer you liked something about that influencer their content their voice their point of view like whatever it was like just lean into that I think the biggest mistake is brands like try and creative direct the entire content and like what they're saying and like make it so much that their voice is completely gone. 
And so I think that's a huge mistake. Like when you're hiring an influencer, like let them have creative input and listen to them and lean into what they're saying and suggesting because there's a reason for it. Like there's no reason this influencer wants this content to perform badly. Like they want good engagement impressions and to impress their followers. So I think if you're a brand and you're working in influencer marketing, work with the influencer, like don't direct them on what to say and what to do with their content. Yeah, I love that because I've, I've definitely experienced that. Like if a brand wants me to say a script or they want mm-hmm. something super that. specific, yeah. I'm like, this is just so not natural to me. Like I won't work yeah. with with brands that will do that because I'm like, I people are going to know that this is just like not me. Like this is not my right. voice. This is I would never say this. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So. And if they want that, like go do podcast marketing where it's like an ad read or something like that. Like I just think influencer marketing, it really should come from the influencer's voice and point of view. So right. it's a huge miss if they don't. Right. And where do you see like the future of influencer marketing going? Since you have been in it since literally the beginning, where do you see it going in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, I think like working with the most sought after influencers is just going to get more difficult for brands. And so I think if you're a brand without a paid influencer strategy, like that's something you really need to implement. Um, So I think that's, we're going to see a big shift there is like a lot of the organic influencer is going to shift to paid. Um, And then I think, you know, working with influencers more long-term, I think we'll see like less one-off collaborations and more like ambassador style long-term collaborations. Cause I feel like brands get more out of that. And when it's this like relationship that's long-term, it's like, yes, they're contracted for certain deliverables, but the brand usually gets more out of it. Um, And I think it works well for the influencer because they're consistent with who they're talking about and who they're saying they like as a brand. Um, So seeing more of that, I know we were seeing like a huge influx before COVID of like experiences with influencers. And I think we'll eventually see more of that as travel becomes safer. Um, But, you know, taking influencers on trips and creating content. Um, I think another thing we saw during COVID too was, you know, a lot of, you know, big ad agencies couldn't do big production shoots and things like that. So us as like an influencer agency, we were getting a lot of those castings and a lot of that work because these brands needed content. And so they were, you know, literally (laughs) sending their clothing or whatever their products to these influencers to shoot at their own homes. I thought that was really interesting. It's like using creators, not just for like the posting and the impressions, um, but also just for high quality content that a brand needs and it's expensive to create. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely agree with you with the long-term partnerships and I think it'll just be like more authentic relationships in the future, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, not that they're not authentic, but you know, the long-term ones, it makes it easier to be authentic because like you've talked about them so many times, you've used them Mm -hmm. in so many of your videos or Instagrams. And I think it's just going to continue that way. So I, I definitely agree with that. And I know with um, B Socials, I know you said that you kind of started by yourself and then you started adding people slowly to your team. How many people mm. do you currently have working for B Social? Um, just about 20 right now. Um, and so, which I don't know, seems like a lot, doesn't seem like a lot, but I think there's like a certain point, like when you get above like five employees and then 10 employees, like 
it just has like a different shift about the organization because you don't really get to know everyone as closely as you did when you were like a three person show. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like it's, it's a good size and it's, it's very difficult to manage. Um, but I think, you know, with, with COVID and all of that, we, you know, weren't able to grow as quickly in 2020 as we would have liked, but we're seeing a lot more opportunities this year and we're seeing more brand spending and even the event space. So um, we're hoping to like grow our team this year. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I, I would love to hear more about how you manage a team of 20, because I know it started mm-hmm. with just you and you started at 23, right? Is that when you started the company? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did you grow from being, you know, a solopreneur to growing this team of 20 and managing them? Like what are some management trips? tricks that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is something I'm like constantly still learning. I'm not a natural manager. Um, I'm really like, like, I'll just do it. I can do it quicker. Like I'd rather not explain it, which is like a horrible trait as a person who manages a team of people. Um, So it's been a really difficult like road for me. I think it's probably one of the hardest parts of entrepreneurship for me. Um, like getting new business and marketing myself. Like I can do that with my eyes closed. Um, managing a team is just, it just doesn't come natural. So, um, it's been a lot of learning. (laughs) Um, and I think finally now, like I have a team of executives that have great management style and skills. And I think I learned from them. Um, but I think, one of the biggest things I learned was, um, from a book called radical candor. And I think I had always like struggled with like, oh, if you're a boss, you need to like be a certain way and have like a certain persona. And it was, I'm like a naturally like a funny, goofy person. And I always felt like I couldn't be that in a leadership role. And after reading that book, I realized like you can be yourself. You can be kind, warm in the things you want to be and still get respect. And I think that's something that I've really been focusing on is just trying to be myself. And I think people will respect you with that. So that's something I've been working on. I I think now too, we have an HR team that has been giving me tons of tips and tricks, articles to read. I have one-on-ones with them to just like better myself as a leader. Um, And I don't think the work ever ends. I think I'll continuously, you know, be learning in that space, but it's just, it's not easy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm someone that's exactly like that. Like I would rather Mm. do things myself. I'm like, I can do it. It's fine. Like I know, I know exactly what I want and like, I don't have to train someone. Like I'll just do everything myself, but it can get so tiring. And I feel like you can't scale that way. Like it's just impossible to scale. No, you can't. And I have people on my team now that do like do it so much better than I ever could. So and I think that's a big thing as an entrepreneur is like trusting your staff. Mm-hmm. and letting go. And I think that that was something that was difficult for me in the beginning, but now I feel like I'm in a really good place with that. Yeah. And who was your first hire then? Like I, in the beginning, did yeah. you make any like hiring mistakes or maybe not mistakes, but like, Oh, I mean, yeah, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. I've made a million hiring mistakes. And I think when your company is growing so quickly, like you just, you need to hire and that's like a bad place to be. So we now it's like, we really try and plan out like who we're going to need, what our budgeting looks like. So we can start that interview process, like with a longer lead time and not be like in a pinch that we're like 
sending an offer out to someone that we're not hundred percent about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course I've made like tons, tons of mistakes, um, and certainly own up to that. And I think anyone with a company can probably say that. Um, but one of my first hires, um, she's no longer with us, but she was like, I think probably like the first year or so with us. Um, she was great. I mean, we were like similar in age, she was straight out of college, such a hard worker, um, really, really helped me in the beginning, um, few months of the company, which I was super grateful for. Um, but one of my really like long-term full-time staff members, um, is someone who's still with us today. Her name is Kirsten. She's our VP now. Um, but yeah, she's been with us like seriously from the beginning and such a huge part of Be Social. Yeah, that's that's incredible because I definitely think that's the one thing I'm in the process of starting a startup and I have some co-founders and mm-hmm. we're looking to raise money and we're, you know, kind of going through the very, very early startup stages. And it's so different than anything else I've done because I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do YouTube and I have Instagram and then I have like my agency, which is like kind of like a freelance, you know, like mm-hmm. where I help with social. So this is something totally new. And mm-hmm. for me, the hardest part is that management and that you know, delegating things to other people and like managing other people or figuring out who we need to hire and budgets, like all of that. It's, I'm excited to embrace it and to learn it, but it's not something that comes like a hundred percent natural. Like it's definitely something I'm trying mm-hmm. to learn. Cause I've been by myself for so long. Like I've literally worked by myself for so long that now like managing yeah. people, I'm like, all right, this is going to be like the hardest part. <laughs> it really is. Read radical candor. It's a really good book. And like I would just say, like, continue reading articles about it, listen to podcasts on management. Like, mm-hmm. if it's not natural, it is, it can be the hardest part of being a business owner. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like you where I'm like, I can market this. I know I can grow this. Yeah. I, can, <laughs> I just like the, the delegating, I guess, is my, is, is hard for me. So that's encouraging to hear that you also felt that way. And like, now you have this yes. business, you have 20 employees, which is so amazing. Um, yeah. and it's grown so much in just a few years. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and do you have like a pinch me moment with be social? I'm sure you have a lot, but is there any moment where you were like, Oh my God, I like, I made it. Like I made it. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I think like in the very early years, we had, um, an inquiry from Disney, like they had reached out to us to help them launch, um, the mini style Instagram account. And like, that was just like a full circle moment for me. Cause like, as a little girl, I was like obsessed with Minnie Mouse and like Disney is such a huge company. I think that that was a moment where I was like, this company is reaching out to me to like help them with this. This is crazy. So I felt like that was a really big pinch me moment. And I think kind of after that moment, we like more and more of those types of clients started reaching out to us. So I felt like that was like a kind of a turning point. Um, and then more recently when, um, uh, social got acquired, it was like a really big moment for me. Um, you know, sort of everything that I had built over the past couple of years and, you know, a larger company recognizing that and wanting to be a part of it, I think was a, a really big pinch me moment too. Oh, congrats. I didn't even know that you guys got acquired. That's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. We got acquired, um, in 2020 in August. Um, so by a parent company and now we're part of like a handful of different agencies and that process in itself was overwhelming to say the least, but, 
Um, it's been such a, a great decision. I think, um, I, you know, being an entre- entrepreneur um, is like kind of lonely at the top and being a young female entrepreneur, like, you know, I didn't have tons of resources around me to, especially with people to learn from. And so um, with this acquisition, I feel like very supported in that way and sort of like a weight lifted off my shoulder. So it's been yeah. nice. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Was that a goal of yours from the beginning when you started Be Social to be acquired or did you kind of just wing it and was like, I'll learn as I go, I'll figure everything out as I go? Yeah, it was never anything like, I don't know. I just didn't really grasp the idea of like, oh, people buy agencies, which like now looking back, like, of course, like there's, you know, that's what happens in this, in this industry. So no, it was like never on my radar. Um, I just thought I'd kind of keep running the company and keep growing it and that would be, you know, how it worked. But um, we started getting inbound inquiries from different companies, um, you know, wanting to acquire us. And so at first it was like, oh, I'm not going to take these. And I started taking the calls and having the conversations. And I was like, this is actually really interesting. Um, and I made sure I found a partner that, you know, let us keep our name, our staff and, you know, continue moving in that direction and not just being like gobbled up by like a big company. And we're sort of all dispersed within that. That was like, not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, so with our, you know, current situation, that's what we got. So it's worked out. Yeah. And how, what is that process like when you're looking to see like the next steps, like you're exiting your company, you're getting acquired, like Mm -hmm. how, what do you vet, I guess, when you're looking at the company that's going to buy you? Is it just that, that you have like that good, like you still are part of the company, Mm -hmm. you're still like small and intimate or are there other things that you looked at also? Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me was like keeping be social as be social and like allow me to continue running the company. Um, so that was like the biggest thing I was looking for. And there was people or companies I was talking to where that wouldn't have been the situation. Like I would have been moved to a different role. Like, you know, there would have been staff changes and client changes. And I was just like not interested in that whatsoever. Um, so that really weeded out a lot of different, um, potential partners. And then, um, you know, being acquired, you're now for the first time, I'm like reporting into someone I have, you know, this company is taking over our accounting and HR. And so um, there's a lot of like integration. So I just wanted to make sure it was a partner that I liked and believed in and was a nice person. (laughs) Like really, like there was calls where I was like, oh my gosh, this person on the other line is so cold. And I could, I could never see myself like having to talk to them every day. Right. Um, so that was a big part of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously when you get acquired, like you make money, right? So what was the financial offer on the table? Um, 
you know, that was an important piece too. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, B social is one of, I mean, you guys have been ranked like one of the fastest growing companies, right? By, by Inc. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we had like tremendous growth, um, from 2018 to 2019, um, which the timing really aligns with, I think brands just like being obsessed with influencer marketing. And we were one of kind of the first in the space. So that kind of all made sense, but yeah, I mean, when a company is looking to acquire you, they're definitely looking at your financials, right? So it's like, what is your profit? Um, you know, how much money is coming in and out? And so really getting all of that dialed was a huge exercise and um, took a lot of time and energy. How, what's it like to be ranked, get that award, you know, of like being one of the fastest growing companies? Because I think that's something that's such an accomplishment. I've, I've noticed that yeah. you've featured in like Forbes and this award, like yeah. what's that feeling like? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that was, that was really awesome. And I think a lot of these types of things we've been doing like press or awards or whatever come like very, like they're very organic and they've been kind of coming in, which is like so exciting. And I think something we want to work on this year and next year is like being more proactive about those awards and opportunities um, but I think being featured in a Forbes or getting an award from Inc, like it, it, it's so cool. Like I, I never thought that something like that would happen. Um, but the Inc awards are, are something that, you know, it's kind of interesting. You have to sort of give up a lot of information. You basically have to share your entire like financials, <laughs> which I was like, originally I was like, no, no, thank you. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, but I ended up doing it and I'm, I'm glad we got one of the awards. So, but it was a cool feeling. Yeah, no, I think uh, that's so incredible. And it's start, I mean, it's just crazy how fast I think the influencer industry has grown because mm-hmm. I started doing YouTube 10 years ago. So I started oh, wow. in, yeah, 2011. It's going to be 10 years in like this summer. And when I started, like, a YouTube, I don't even think was making, like, I don't even think it had AdSense. Like, I feel like I started mm-hmm. like before anyone yeah. was making money no one knew what a blogger YouTuber was back then. It was like just starting out. And now yeah, it's this huge, huge industry. I think it's projected to be 15 billion next year. The mm-hmm. influencer industry. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's crazy at how big it's gotten and how much money is into it. Is there, do you have anything coming up for be social maybe that you're trying to implement more of or uh, excited mm-hmm. to work on in the future? Yeah, I think um, obviously like all the time looking to get more clients, both on the talent representation side and brand side. Um, But I think to your point, like having an organization that has like such a touch point on influencer marketing in an industry that is so large, um, we're looking to create our own products and be able to really turnkey and seamlessly market them through our relationships. So we launched something called Brand Edit this year which is a curated uh, box of our favorite products. And we've actually partnered with different influencers to curate them. Um, And we send those out to different creators to like share the products inside the boxes. And um, that project, which was just like sort of an idea we had during COVID because we couldn't do like our showroom influencer houses anymore. um, It sort of just came from, oh, we have to pivot and figure this out. So it came from like a small idea. We'll try it to like, now this is like a huge piece of our company now and generating revenue and really successful. So I think we want to see like more of those different kind of special projects that we're launching in the form of what would be like a product. 
Yeah, no, that's that's so cool. I went on your website and I did see the brand at it and I was like, wait, this is so cool. Like <laughs> what you guys are creating. So yeah, we have a lot of work with it, but yeah, like it's early stages, but it's, it's really fun for our team. So we're excited about it. No, that's really incredible. And I mean, now, especially like you are the founder of Be Social, you started again, kind of by yourself and then it's grown into this big company that's even gotten acquired. What is your day-to-day like now? Like, are you still involved in the specific Mm -hmm. like influencer management? Like, are you still managing influencers? Are you still managing any campaigns or like, what does your day look like? Yeah. Um, so I am managing influencers. Um, and that was something I, I, I had let go for a little bit. Um, and I had this realization that I love doing it and it was like why I'd started this company. And so I shifted back into direct managing of influencers. Um, so I have a roster of about 10, um, and I work with my colleague Jess on those influencers. Um, so we do like all their day-to-day brand deals, PR, like all the things, um, which keeps me pretty busy. I'd say that's like half of my day or like 75% of my day. Um, and then the other part is, you know, I have to uh, report into our parent company, um, you know, be on CEO calls, uh, report in on like budgeting meetings. Um, I have to make a lot of like decisions. Like I feel like a lot of the time, all I'm doing is like, yes, you can do that. No, you can't do that. So a lot of people were like the department heads will report into me like, Hey, I just want to get this approved. So a lot of reviewing and saying yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like, what else? Um, I'm focused on brand edit, like getting that launched and like all the special projects we're working on, um, you know, doing our podcast, doing press stuff, like trying to market, be social. Um, but I don't know, like, I feel like every day is different. Um, but I would say majority of my day is like focused on, on the influencers and and managing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's still really cool how you're able to still do what you love and like what you started with. So did you start with managing influencers or did you just start with like, um, the working with brands as your client? The brand side. So that was like an interesting shift actually. So we worked with, um, started with brands and helping them with their influencer strategy. And I ended up just like making relationships with all these influencers that were like the same age as me. And, um, I essentially was like then helping them, you know, like consulting them, like, Hey, you should do this. Or like, why don't you create this website or do this? And, you know, they would come to me like, Hey, like Lori, I'll reach out to me. Like, what do I charge? Like, I have no idea what to say. And so I would just be like, Hey, say this. And then I kept referring them to like other influencer companies at the time, management companies. And then like a light bulb, light bulb clicked. And I was like, oh, wait, what am I doing? Like, yeah. <laughs> why don't I do this myself? Like I could monetize this. So I did. Um, I think it was like two years into the company that we launched that piece of the business and um, just started like representing a few people I knew closely. And that's, you know, half of our business now is actually the influencer management representation. That's incredible. How many influencers do you guys have under Be Social? Do you know? We have about 70. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so many. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) And so have you, so I know like be social has grown so much, but have you mm -hmm. faced any setbacks or challenges while starting this and running this company? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the, COVID was like very Mm -hmm. much a setback for the company. Um, 
a lot of how we generated revenue was in-person experiences. We created experiences as a company. We did events. We, you know, launched experiential moments. Like that was a big part of our revenue. Um, so that was very difficult. Like we saw a huge dip in um, our revenue when basically everything closed down. And especially with like Coachella and festival season coming up, we had huge contracts with very large brands that all got canceled. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like that was a, cause I had always seen growth within the company. I'd never seen like a setback with our revenue. And that was, we had just come off like one of our largest years um, had huge growth, huge momentum, and it was just sort of like devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was a really hard thing to get over, but we really just had to get creative. Um, and I think while everything was like on pause, that gave us like room to breathe on like figuring out how we evolve and get beyond this. And we did, and, you know, I'm thankful for that, but, um, definitely difficult. Yeah. I feel like it's also something that literally no one expected to happen. And yeah. no <laughs> there's one no knew. like yeah. <laughs> game plan for that. Right. Like right. there was no, like, what do you do? I guess, you know, when your revenue plummets and all your contracts get, you know, canceled, yeah. um, you have to think about like your staffing and who was working on those contracts and what do we do with them? And it was a lot of decision-making that had to happen and not tons of resources to like figure it out. Yeah. I remember in March, I had like a bunch of brand deals coming up and like almost all of them were like canceled or postponed or, mm-hmm. and I was just like, Oh my God, like what if this is what the rest of the year is going to look like? And mm-hmm. thankfully it wasn't, but like no one knew what was going to go on. I was like, do I need to like move back home and save money? I'm like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So I'm glad it though was, that it was a lot. It, it got better as the year went on, but yeah, that first mm-hmm. month um, was definitely like, no one knew what was going on or what was happening. And before we go, what is something that you wish that you knew before starting a business? So do you have any advice or something that you would tell yourself at 23 before you started Be Social? Yeah, I think I had a really difficult time with taking everything so personal. Like if an employee was unhappy or someone quit or a client was unhappy, like I would take things so personally. And I think really, I wish I had known that I need to like separate my personal and professional life. Um, I think that would have made my mental health much better. Um, and I think also just learning how to take a break. Like I was the type of person that would be like up until 2am working on things, with my computer in my bed. And like, I really now, like I have boundaries that I've set for myself and now that I've done that, I have boundaries for my staff and my team. And I feel like I make I'm just a better leader because I've finally have set boundaries for myself. That makes sense. Yeah. No, that's such good advice and something I will definitely be taking with me too. (laughs) Very relevant. Good. Um, Well, thank you so much, Allie, for coming on my podcast. Where can they find you? Yeah. Where can they find you and be social? Yeah. um, I'm on Instagram, um, which is at Allie Grant, A-L-I Grant. And then be social too is at be social group. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This was so fun.
Mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.